How we doing? Good. Thank you, Maddie. That was great. Um, so, yeah, so we're up to... Um, let's start again. Oh, I'm so glad it's going to be Daylight Savings ending next week. I feel like... I feel like there's, I hate daylight savings. If you've been in the church long enough, I, I quite often, I barely post much on Facebook, but I am anti-daylight savings, So, which seems to be bizarre, and everybody's like, why? And I'm like, because I don't want to lose an hour of sleep. So I'm really thankful that next week we're going to get it back. So anyway, I feel like I need it today. So we, um, of course, have been doing the spiritual rhythms, right? And as, as Craig has said, it's about... Spiritual rhythms that we need to have in our life. We need to not add these things into our life, but we need to have these as rhythms that flow through our life. And as we do that, our life will actually function the way that God intended. And it's really hard for most of us because we haven't lived this way. So now we're having to make changes and make adjustments. And what we discovered through this whole series as we were researching and putting together the, the series this some of the stuff seems really new to us but this is actually how the early church lived this is how they lived their life and over time over the last sort of couple of thousand years what has happened is it has has eroded away the spiritual rhythms that god has intended for us to live our life have eroded away and so now we're discussing bringing them back because we actually want to ensure that ourselves personally and for, for you, the church, live your life the way that God intended. Because that way you're going to have this abundant, amazing life that God always wanted you to have. Does that make sense? So I was on Facebook and what flashed up was that three years ago, um, we changed our name to Revive. Did you know that? Three years ago. I can't believe it. We did. We changed our name to Revive, and then two weeks later, we went into lockdown, right? So it was kind of like we had this awesome, amazing, if you're here for that day, it was great. We had this great, amazing thing, and we were all revved up, ready to go, and then it all kind of got shut down. So can you go to the next slide for me, Sienna? Sweet. So this is our kind of um, new logo that we came up with, and it was really awesome. In fact, the whole process about how they came up with the logo is that Craig and some of the guys from the um, national leadership team, they met with an um, advertising guru guy, and he would talk to them about branding and what the brand says and the colours that we had to use and how he listened to the story of Revive, um, and then he listened to uh, Pukekohe's story because Pukekohe um, was birthed 100 years ago. In fact, this year will be 101. And we came out of the Smith Wigglesworth revival meetings. And, and so he came up with this amazing, cool little slogan, which is revive. It's not what we do. It's who we are. And it's amazing. And he took 100 years of history and this advertising guy shrunk it down to one very simple sentence to sum up everything that revive was. And what I think is that we quite often do this to people. We quite often try to take the whole person and, and kind of put them into this box and have one very simple little saying to describe this person. The problem with that is that human beings are not simple. We are incredibly complex. And today we want to talk to you about simplicity. I want to talk to you about having a spiritual rhythm of simplicity. And now half of you are thinking to yourself, oh great, she's going to tell me I have to declutter my kitchen or declutter the lounge. No, no, no. Decluttering is just called being an adult and putting things away. 
That's what that is. That's not a spiritual gift. You don't have the spiritual gift of decluttering. No, no, you're just being an adult and you're tidying up after yourself. That's what it is. So if you don't do that, you might want to adult this afternoon and tidy up your house. But the opposite of simplicity is not complexity. That is what we think. We think if something is simple, then the opposite is complex. No, no, the opposite of simplicity is not complexity, it's superficiality. You see, it's not a choice between a simple life or a complex life. It's actually the choices between having a deep life or having a shallow life. Or to use the language that we've been using throughout the spiritual rhythms, it's the difference between having a life of focus or a life of distraction. Thomas Kelly, who is a um, 20th century Quaker, he, he said this, and I think it, it sums up for, for a lot of us what we feel. And he, Thomas Kelly wrote, We feel honestly the pull of many obligations and to try to, to, to fulfill them all. And we are unhappy, uneasy, strained, oppressed, and fearful we shall be shallow. We have hence that there is a way of life vastly richer and deeper than all of this hurried existence, a life of unhurried serenity and peace and power. If we could only slip over into that center. We have seen and known some people who have found this deep center of living where the fretful calls of life are integrated, where there is no as well as yes can be said with confidence. I have three sisters and One of my sisters has a um, degree in psychology and she has a master's in educational psychology. And because she was doing this study while she was um, running an alternative education school and while she was raising children, um, she would quite often get other people to type up her assignments. And I had the privilege of actually being able to type up a couple of her assignments for her because she's not a typist and I did typing in high school. Probably the only really relevant thing I actually did at high school. I'm really glad I did. Um, so I had this, this opportunity to read her assignments as she did them, and I found the whole subject of psychology really fascinating. Consequently, because I like to know stuff, like I like to know all sorts of random stuff, like that's just what I'm like. And so I have kind of kept my, my finger on the pulse of different things that happen in and, you know, so I kept going back to this one website that she had mentioned. And so several times I would read through stuff. And what I've learned about recently is a thing called internal family systems therapy. Is anyone familiar with it? No. All right. So <laughs> just to give you a little bit of a, an idea in layman's terms while it is, we often think about ourselves as a personality, right? You could be a type three on the Enneagram or an ESFP on the Myers-Briggs or a DC on the DIST test or whatever your behavioral pattern is, right? You do a personality test, it tells you this. And so we think of ourselves in light of that. The problem is it does not actually capture the full complexity of a human being. Because there are actually more than nine personality types or 16 or 12 or whatever template it is that you're using to measure your personality against. But whatever you use to define yourself, to reduce yourself down to a simple statement, you need to remember this. You are not just that. You are not only that. You are not even that. See, under this um, new, new kind of therapy, The way that they suggest that you think about yourself 
is not as a personality, but as a family of sub-personalities. Now, I know this might sound a bit weird, but if you just hang with me for a few minutes, I'll explain it, and I'm sure it'll be better. This idea of us being not an individual personality, but being a family of sub-personalities, actually is more in line with biblical theology, because our God is three in one. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, meaning that God is relational to the core. He even says himself in Genesis 1.26, he says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. And that's what happened. God made us in his image, meaning that we are relational to the core. You see, one way of thinking about it is that God is a family who makes families. And really, what we say is I is really a part of a whole lot of sub-personalities coming together to form I. Now, I know some of you are really into the Enneagram, probably way too much. And under the Enneagram theory, there are nine basic personality types. And experts will tell you that you actually have all nine within you, but that one will be more dominant than the other. It also says that when you are in growth or when you're feeling good and everything in your life is going well, there's a number that you gravitate to. Or when you are in stress or when you're in fear, there's a different number that you gravitate to. And that you also have wings. And, and so while you might have this number as your main one, sometimes you'll dabble in this other one depending on how you feel. The problem is that these sub-personalities all have their own agendas. They all have their own thing that they want to push forward inside this. And your soul becomes kind of a Darwinian survival of the fittest. It's like when you go to a supermarket and your healthy self does the shopping, but then later on in the day, your fat self gets really mad because you want snacks. That's what it is. You have this kind of mixed thing going on inside of you. Internal family systems therapy is all about how do we get all your sub-personalities to integrate around a center so that you're not fighting internally, but that you're all pulling in the same direction. In 2015, Pixar put out a movie called Inside Out, written by a Christian. And I want to play a clip because I think this will explain it for you a bit better, just in case I'm not doing a good job of it. Can we roll our video? Have you got it? Yes. So, how was the first day of school? It was fine, I guess. I don't know. Do you ever look at someone and wonder what is going on inside their head? Did you guys pick up on that? Sure mm -hmm. did. Something's wrong. We're going to find out what's happening, but we'll need support. Signal the husband. <clears throat> With a nice pass over the ring. Across right. <coughs> uh oh, she's looking at us. What did she say? What? Oh, oh, sorry, sir. No one was listening. Is it garbage night? Uh, we left the toilet seat up. What? What is it, woman? What? Signal him again. Ah, so, Riley, how was school? Oh, you gotta be kidding me. For this, we gave up that Brazilian helicopter pilot? School was great, all right? What was that? I thought you said we were gonna act casual. Riley, is everything okay? <sighs> Sir, she just rolled her eyes at us. All right, make a show of force. I don't wanna have to put the foot down. No, 
Not the thought. Riley, I do not like this new attitude. Oh, I'll show you attitude, old no, man. No, 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 breathe. What is your problem? Just leave me alone. Sir, reporting high levels of sass. Take it to DEFCON 2. DEFCON 2. I don't know where this disrespectful attitude came from. You want a piece of this, Pops? Yeah, well, look. Prepare the foot. Keys to safety position. Ready to launch on your command, sir. That's it. Go to your room. The foot is down. The foot is down. Yeah! Good job, gentlemen. That could have been a disaster. Well, that was a disaster. Come, fly with me, Gachinha. <sighs> so what it is saying is that we all have a central core of ourselves, but then we have all these parts inside ourselves that can battle against one another because they're not actually moving in the same direction. On the Enneagram 5, uh, on the Enneagram, I'm actually an Enneagram 5, which means I'm the investigator. It means I like to know stuff. I, like, I think knowledge has, uh, is the highest thing and we need to know stuff. I'm also what you call a wing 6. Now, a 6 is a skeptic. The problem is when you want to know stuff and you're a skeptic, you can sometimes become a conspiracy theorist. So you can imagine how much fun I was having during lockdown. In fact, to be honest, I kind of delve into a few of these conspiracy theories just because I do find them fascinating um, and I can uh, use them to rock Craig up. Um, <laughs> thankfully though, I myself am anchored in the Word of God. So I didn't get lost inside the conspiracy theories. I was able to be able to, having that anchor meant that I couldn't dive too deep. It also meant that I didn't actually drink the Kool-Aid. The integration of our sub-personalities is actually the job of our soul. You see, some people think that your soul is this wispy-like thing that when you die, leaves your body and goes up into heaven. We kind of got that idea from Plato and Looney Tunes, to be quite honest. But the Bible teaches us that your soul is your whole person. It's your mind, it's your will, it's your emotions. And if we misunderstand what the soul is, we will misunderstand how to take care of it. And we'll also misunderstand how Jesus saved it. The Greek word that we translate for save in the New Testament is soteria. And we use the English word, we also use this as the English word for heal. So at times when you're reading the Gospels and you read that Jesus saved, and then a paragraph later, you read that Jesus healed. It's the exact same word. Salvation isn't about the whispery cartoon part of you going up to heaven when you die. A lot of people believe that that's what salvation is. It's literally about entry into heaven. It's not. It's about the healing and the health of your soul right now and in eternity. It's about you being a whole person as you come back into relationship with God. When we are not integrated around a center, we actually feel torn. We feel fragmented. We feel tired and tense. And sometimes there's anger that accompanies it. And if it goes on for too long, you can find yourself getting into a depression. But when we become integrated around a focal point, what you will find is that you will actually be at peace. So the question for us becomes, what do we integrate around? Now, the secular world and its futile attempt to self-save would have you look within yourself to find your inner truth. And we kind of have this pseudo-Hindu yoga kind of thing going on. And while that has some benefits for some people, 
in all honesty, you will actually end up by feeling worse and ultimately a lot poorer as you keep buying all the self-help books. Jesus would have you look within yourself, but not to yourself, but instead look within yourself to God. Paul said it in uh, Colossians 1.27, that is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Jesus himself said in John 15 verse 5, when he talks about being that he is the vine and we are the branches, the question for us needs to be, where does the vine start and the branch end? And hopefully you can't tell. Do you remember a couple of weeks ago when I talked about competing desires? And I talked about we had these desires that fight against each other. Remember, you go to pack and save, and on one side you have, you know, this really awesome chocolate ghetto cake, but on the other side you've got the Chris Hemsworth ab workout, and how the two are competing desires that fight against each other. When we're in that state, what happens is that we aren't integrated, and what we happens is we begin to disintegrate. And we have, once again, a fight. I think King David said it best in Psalm 86.11 when he says, Unite my heart to fear your name. Unite my heart. I love that because my heart is so often divided. You see, I want God. I honestly want God. But I also want money. And I want stuff. And I want luxury. And I want status. And I want quick pleasure. And these desires constantly tear at my soul and they play havoc with my peace. And I actually feel fragmented and fractured. And I have to come back to the center. The center for us is Jesus. The center for us is God. It's where we will one thing. Richard Foster put simplicity in these terms, and I actually think it's it's the best one I've read ever. And he says this, Simplicity, the inward reality of a single-hearted focus upon God and his kingdom, which results in an outward lifestyle of modesty, openness, and unpretentiousness, and which disciplines our hunger for status, glamour, and luxury. The inward reality of a single-hearted focus on God and his kingdom. I love that. That is what simplicity is. It's not putting things away. It is living with a single-hearted focus. You see, long before simplicity becomes about how many pairs of shoes you own or how much clutter you have in your kitchen, it is actually about simplicity of your heart. And from there, we move this whole subject. When I began looking and researching, this whole subject is so huge, it would actually take four or five Sundays to pull off teaching this fully because you go from simplicity of heart to simplicity of your speech, which is a disciplined attempt to bring your speech into alignment with Jesus' heart, ultimately to bring blessing into the world. Then we have simplicity of apparel, which is desiring less and being generous to help us lay hold of Jesus' promise of living a life to the full. Simplicity of stuff covers our life is not about our possessions. And then finally, once we've managed to master through those things, we reach what we call the simplicity of your lifestyle, which is about living the way of the kingdom. But it all starts with your heart. See, Proverbs 4.23 says, Guard your heart above all else. For it determines the course of your life. We have to find something to simplify around. Because if you don't, you will end up fractured. 
Steve Jobs. I'm sure most of you know who he is. Can we put his picture up? Sienna? So this is Steve Jobs. He brought us the Apple design ethos. He, is a, he was a multi-billionaire who was so single-minded and so focused that he wore the same outfit every single day. He wore a black turtleneck, he wore blue jeans and New Balance tennis shoes. And his reasoning for doing that is not, as most people think, he's a minimalist. It was because he didn't want to think about anything other than Apple and what he was doing and the design work that he was doing with Apple. This particular picture is taken in 1982. And it looks like a classic minimalist photo, right? If you have a look, it's just him. Can you see there's like no clutter at all? But you notice there's no photos, there's no people, there's no children running around. Do you know he had a daughter that he refused to acknowledge until she was in college? Which is just horrific when you think about the rejection she must, be, must have felt. In fact, his biography, if you read it, is tragic. It is one broken relationship after another after another. Not only that, but the biographer said that this photo, which is quite famous for Steve Jobs, and people say, oh, he's such a minimalist, he was so focused on what he was doing. The biographer said that's not the case. He said that Steve Jobs is actually an obsessive compulsive perfectionist. And the reason why his lounge looked like that was because he couldn't decide on the perfect seating layout. So he decided not to have one. Now, Steve Jobs' center was not God. It was not relationships or love. And in his own words, his, his, um, his center, his, his drive was to change the world through technology. And he did that. In fact, I myself am a complete and utter Apple convert. I have an iPhone. I have an iPad. I have a MacBook. I have um, a, an Apple Watch. We even have Apple TV. So I really do appreciate his emphasis and the focus on what he did. Problem is... And you can say his life was not superficial at all. This man's life was not superficial. But he was certainly a man who lost his soul. See, what you center your heart on will determine who you will or will not become for better or worse. I want us to turn to Luke chapter 12. We're going to read from verse 22. But in all honesty, uh, most Bibles um, for Luke chapter 12 break it right here at this point. But you need to actually read it in context. So ideally, you need to read the whole of chapter 12 as one passage, not with it being broken in this point. So this week, I'd like you to actually do that, to go away and read the whole of Luke chapter 12 as if it is one passage and not to be broken up. But we're going to pick it up from verse 22. And it says, Then he said to his disciples, Therefore I say to you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat, nor about the body what you'll put on. The life is more than food, and the body is more than clothing. You see, life does not exist in an abundance of possessions. We fret and we obsess over whatever is in our heart, be that money, career, people-pleasing. Whatever it is that you obsess over will dominate your heart. And we doom our own soul to a lifetime of anxiety because anything other than Jesus can and will be taken away from you. We've just lived through that for the last three years. We had a pan global pandemic that took away so much from so many people, things that they were passionate about, things that they had saved for, things that they had worked their butt off for. We've got people losing their homes all because a global pandemic, maybe also by a recession and by a relationship fracture. 
anything other than Jesus can and will often be taken away. Verse 24, Consider the ravens, for they neither sow nor reap, which have neither storehouse nor barn, and God feeds them. How much more value are you than birds? And which of you, by worrying, can add one cubit to his stature? If you are not then able to do the least, why are you anxious for the rest? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, and yet I say to you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. If then God so clothes the grass, which, to, which today is in the field and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? And do not seek what you should eat or what you should drink, nor have an anxious mind. For all these things the nations of the world seek after, and your Father knows that you have need of these. But seek the kingdom of God, and all these things will be added to you. This can actually be translated, seek first his kingdom, or make your top priority of your heart his kingdom. The word seek in Greek is the word zeteo, and it means to go and find something with passion. It's also where we get the English word for zeal from. So we are to seek the kingdom of God with passion, with be unrelenting. We are to seek it with zeal. In verse 32, do not fear, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell what you have and give alms. Provide yourselves money bags which do not grow old, a treasure in the heavens which does not fail, where no thief approaches nor moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. You see, the key idea of of Jesus' biblical theology of money is where you invest your resources, your money, your time, your energy, what you think about, will overtake your heart. And now it's either going to do one or two things. It's going to entrap your heart in greed, or it's going to set it free in love. So for us, what does it mean to seek first the kingdom? It means to invest your resource of your life into God and what he is doing around the world. It is two things. One, to live for God's presence, and two, to live for his pleasure. So if we are to live for God's presence, you need to remember that God's presence is not a force like in Star Wars. God's, the force that we talk about is actually a he. It's a person. It's a relational being that we have relationship with and conversation with. When Jesus said to abide in the vine, that word abide can be translated dwell. So it means to make your home in God and for God to make his home in you. Seek first the kingdom is to live with God at the forefront of our minds. And the only way to do that is to get rid of what we believe is a divide between what we think of as holy and what we think of as secular. That means that things like mowing the lawns, cleaning your house and checking your email needs to be done and become just as holy as when you set aside time for prayer or for reading your word or for attending church. You see, as long as we limit prayer, for example, to just come, turning up to a prayer meeting at 6.30 a.m. on Tuesday, as long as we limit it to that, then God will only ever stay on the margin of our life and he will not be at the center. Seriously, if you do the math on this, if you have a pie chart, and it doesn't matter if you are a normal person, even if you're a pastor, the pie chart tells the same story. We spend more of our time doing things like cleaning, cooking, running around after the kids than we do with prayer. Our life, your everyday life, your mundane, boring details of your life must become prayer. 
Susanna Wesley, who is the mother of um, Charles and John Wesley, said this, and I think this is something we all need to lay a hold of. She said, Help me, Lord, to remember that religion is not to be confined to the church or closet, nor exercised only in prayer and meditation, but that everywhere I am in thy presence. See, God is everywhere. So everywhere you are in his presence, you should be praying. The second thing was we are to live for God's pleasure. There is an insoluble link between God's presence and the level of surrender to God's pleasure or God's will. Jesus said in 9.23, take up his cross and follow him. We are to take up his cross. See, the paradox in the kingdom of God is that self-fulfillment is actually found in self-denial. See, as we give all that we are to him, then he will give all that he is to us. As we yield our life to his pleasure and to his will and to the work of his kingdom, the, the very joy that we are craving, the very satisfaction in life that we are looking for, we will be granted. What does simplicity of heart have to do with how much stuff that we own or whether we're going to buy a new lawnmower come winter or whether we're going to pick up a new dress? You see, the desire of a heart is actually not enough. We need to move from desire to discipline. See, we've been learning about spiritual rhythms and we've been teaching each week small, easy, doable steps to move us closer into living out the kingdom of God. See, prior to recent church history, these rhythms were central to the living as a disciple of Jesus. We have to get back to that. There is a reciprocal relationship between how much stuff we own and how close we are to the center, or to our case, God. Now, there are three reasons why excess stuff can throw off our relationship, can throw us off the holy center. The first one is too much stuff is a distraction to our minds. Physical clutter is often a symptom of mental clutter. It sabotages our capacity to focus on what really matters, which for us is Jesus and his kingdom, right? And it's really hard to keep your mind engaged on God when you're tripping over toys, standing on Lego, and hunting for a lost T-shirt in the laundry pile. When you have excess stuff, you can't be focusing as much on Jesus. Secondly, too much stuff is a drain on our time. The saying, time is money, is actually true. We always neglect the amount of time we spend on stuff. We don't count the true cost beyond the actual cash outlay of stuff. For example, if you have a motorbike, say you spend $5,000 on your motorbike, and then you've got to have money for gas, for maintenance, maybe for a charger in the winter. Um, economic teaches us now that you will have to spend a dollar for, every, for maintenance and upkeep of whatever you buy in its lifetime. So now your $5,000 motorcycle is now costing you 10 grand. Then on top of that, you have to store it, and you have to clean it, uh, and then you've got the time where you need to ride it. And that's a lot of time. And you need to look at the true cost of something versus the benefit of it. Now, I'm not saying this so that everybody who owns a motorbike has to go out and sell their motorbike. That's not what I'm saying. I'm not saying you have to give up your sport. I'm not saying that you have to give up your hobbies. What I am trying to say is that we need to take an honest look and see what our excess stuff, how much of our excess stuff siphons our time our time which needs to be spent focused on the kingdom. Maddie, can you come on to the keyboard? Is she here? Oh, she's out the back. So the third thing is, too much stuff 
and this is the last thing I'm going to say, as a deception to our heart. In Luke chapter 8, verse 4, there's a whole story about um, the different seeds. I want to just skip down to the part in verse 14 when it says, Now the ones that fell on the thorns are those who, when they heard, go out and are choked with cares, riches, and pleasures of life and bring no fruit to maturity. See, we hear the things of God, and we think they sound so good, but we leave here, and we go out into our normal world, where quite often they get choked by the cares of that world, they get choked by the riches that we want, and the pleasures that we'd rather pursue. See, wealth is deceitful because it promises what it can't deliver, which is security and satisfaction. This is why, particularly in the West, people look to money with like a religious-like faith, thinking it will make them happy. Materialism has actually become a really dominant system of meaning in the Western world. Atheism has not actually replaced Christianity. Shopping has. Shopping is now the number one leisure activity in the West where it used to be attending church. Amazon.com is the new temple. The bank statement is the new altar. And Instagram influencers are our new priests and priestesses. And money is the new God. There's a reason that the only other God Jesus ever called out by name was man. Because he saw early on that our human desires, we want to fill that void, that God space that we have in our life that needs to be filled with God. We want to fill it with stuff. So the question for followers of Jesus is not, how do I get how do I get more money? How do I get more stuff? How do I get more status? How do I get more security? But really it's how do I simplify? How do I live with less? And before you can get very far in simplifying your life, you actually need to know what is the vision and the value of your life. And before you can say no to that kayak that you've got stored in the garage that you really use or how many pot of plants you're going to have in your kitchen, you first have to figure out what you're going to say yes to. You need to identify what your most important values are. Our values are the same because our values are to follow Jesus, to be with him and to become like him and to do the things that he did. And then a lot of our values are going to be different because we each have our own gift. You might have the gift of hospitality. So home cooking and welcoming people into your home is a really important value for you. Or you might have the gift of leadership development. So therefore, a value for you is research and putting together teaching materials. Or you might have uh, the gift of mentoring young parents, mentoring uh, married couples or whatever it is. The goal is to identify what you really want to make space for in your life so you can know what to put on.
For some of you, you may have already dealt with this and you can fully say, yep, I am invested in God and the kingdom. For some of you, this might be something new that you've never heard this before and you'll be like, oh my gosh, where am I? You might not even know what your values are. So we're just going to take a moment. I want you to close your eyes. This is a conversation between you and God. Because only you and God know where you stand. So I just want you to close your eyes. So why don't you stick around, get to know someone, say hello, and just love on one another. Amen.